scripture today is Luke chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox I will keep driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a threat to your life or the threat on your life. Um, I've been punched in the face coming out of a chip shop in Wales. Um, I think I smiled at a guy in the wrong way and I got lamped in the face, um, knocked onto the floor. I've received some angry emails. Uh, But that's about the size of it. I've never had my life threatened. But here Jesus has his life threatened. He's in the region of Galilee. And uh, he's warned by the Pharisees that that Herod wants to kill him. Now, we don't know if there is a real threat or or if Jesus' life is actually in danger or if the Pharisees are just making this up so that He will leave the area and go somewhere else where he won't be so much of a bother to them. But if it's true, and some commentators say that it it is true, and that the Pharisees are being genuine here, that they do actually have Jesus' best interests at heart. You know, I think we can sometimes think of the Pharisees as like um, a a villain from a stage play, right? All they are is bad, 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 forever and ever. But maybe they're actually doing Jesus a solid here. Um, and, and they say to him, Jesus, you need to leave the Galilee area because this is Herod Antipas's turf. Uh, you need to get out of Dodge as quickly as you can for your own good. And then verse 32 tells us Jesus' response. Uh, he, anyway, verse 32 says, uh, he, and if you have your Bibles open, you don't need this. So bring your Bibles. And then Jesus says to Herod, he, or Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In, in, in any case, Verse 33, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Now, a few things that are worth knowing here is that that Jesus calls Herod that fox, which probably means he was sneaky and untrustworthy and potentially dangerous, like the fox in the movie Pinocchio. You know, that's the kind of idea of the fox that we might have here. So he calls Herod that fox. Then after making fun of Herod's unsavory character, Jesus then outlines his ministry plan. He says this, 
Uh, and I'm going to turn around so that you can, so that I, oh, I know why, I jumped forward. I want to kill you, leave this place, I want to kill you. Ah, here we go. There we go. That fox. Sorry. Pastor showing you his bum on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Not okay. Uh, so so he says uh he says um he says go tell that fox and then he gives them his answer he says i'll drive out demons uh and uh he- healing people today and tomorrow and on the third day i'll reach my goal in any case i must press on today and tomorrow for surely no prophet can die outside of jerusalem and uh what we see here is that is that jesus is giving um the pharisees his ministry plan he's saying my goal is to drive out demons and to heal people. And so we see here that Jesus' ministry is happening both on the physical level and on the spiritual level. His goal is to impact people's kind of uh, spiritual side by driving out demons and also to heal them. And so here we get the sense that Jesus' kingdom, as he brings it in this kind of um, sneaky way that he is, you know, because he's not telling people who he is yet, uh, but the way that he, he brings it is he wants to bring full health, both on a spiritual level and on a physical level, both what we can see and what we can't see. And then he says this, on the third day, I will reach my goal. And now this is a symbolic statement because, of course, it's not, you know, when Jesus says this, he's not saying that tomorrow I'm going to do this and the next day I'm going to do this. And then on Wednesday, I'll reach, re- reach my goal, right? This is a symbolic statement. And if you've been raised in the church, then you get what the symbolism is talking about. Because this is talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. On the third day, Jesus rose again. And I'll talk more about this later. And then Jesus gives us an insight or an insight into the level of commitment and passion with which he is approaching the goal that he has. And he says this, in, in any case, I must press on. Uh, today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. And it's this phrase, press on, uh, which has actually given rise to the name of this whole series, is that, is that just like Jesus, we are to press on. And so here, when Jesus says this, there's this sense of momentum that he's really determined that, that nothing will stop him achieving the goal which he, ha- which he has. I must press on. And so th- there's this... Uh, sense that, um, that, that Jesus' momentum is such that he is this almost unstoppable force. And, but, but it's not a glorious thing because he's moving towards the inevitability of his own sacrifice, that he, that he will die. And, uh, and if you look through the book of Luke, um, starting in Luke chapter 9, verse 51 is that something shifts in, in, in Luke, and it's from this moment when Jesus starts to resolutely set out that, that from there on, from Luke 9:51 up until the end of the book, Jesus is moving in one way. He has one focus. He's heading towards the capital city. He's heading towards Jerusalem. And, uh, and then he says this, um, that no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, scholars say that we're not to take Jesus' words literally, okay? Uh, but, you know, even Jesus can use hyperbole. You know, Jesus can be sarcastic. Jesus can use um, 
exaggeration. Um, that's not to say he's lying, but he's making a point here. Of course, Jesus is the Son of God. He, it's impossible for him to lie. But here we see Jesus using hyperbole because there are prophets, of course, who did die outside of the capital city, right? So he's making a point. And the point that he's making is that if Jesus is the prophet of prophets, if he's the one that all the prophets pointed towards, then he has to die in the um, region in the area within, uh, w- w- uh, within the city of Jerusalem. And, uh, and why he says this is because he's responding to the words of the Pharisees where they warn him about Herod and they say, um, you know, that Herod wants to kill you. You're in his turf. You're in Galilee. So you have to be careful. Otherwise, Herod's going to kill you. And Jesus says, actually, no, because I know that I will leave this area unscathed because my death will happen elsewhere, right? Herod can't kill me here in Galilee. And so Jesus isn't afraid of him because Jesus knows that his death will take place in Jerusalem. In a sense, Jesus is saying, actually not in a sense, he's actually saying this. Jesus is saying, I'm invincible until I task which God placed me on earth. I'm invincible. And he's right, right? You look at the attempts on his life. You know, when he was a baby, there was attempts made on his life. He survived. And uh, when the crowd tried to push him off the cliff and he just walked through them, Jesus survives it all. And so here's, the, here's a question I want to put in your hopper. And I don't know if I have the right answer to this, but I've heard other people say this. Um, but could it be... And I'm asking this in a, in a tentative way because I'm not sure, like I said, what the answer is. But could it be that just like Jesus, we too are untouchable, that we are invincible until we have lived out God's purpose for us here on earth? That's maybe a conversation that you might want to have at home. And, uh, you know, I think it would be a, a really good question to ask around the meal table. Are we untouchable? Are we invincible until we have fulfilled God's purpose for us here on earth? But, and if that is true, then surely the most important question that we can be asking ourselves is, um, then what is my purpose here on earth? And am I living it out? If that thing that I'm invincible for um, has been laid out, am I living into that? And which then makes me want to ask you, have you ever asked God why you are here on earth. Like, what is God's purpose for you here on earth in this place? Or another way to look at it is, if you knew that you could not be stopped, what would you do for Jesus' kingdom and for his glory? Okay? Just a thought to put in your mind. Let's move on. Verse 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and those who, who... and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Now, we as a family love going for walks, and, uh, and the best hikes for us are the hikes where we can bring Ollie, and he can go off-leash on a trail, and, uh, and he, he just runs around, and he just absolutely loves it. And, but when we're walking as a family, usually we aren't walking in a big group. Usually, you know, you know, the family's up there, and I'm back here maybe taking photos or something like that. And, uh, and what we've noticed is that when the family isn't all together, what happens is that Ollie 
he doesn't choose a group and stay with them. Instead, what he does is he legs it up and down the trail, up and down the trail, up and down the trail. And he will expend a ton of energy running up and down the trail. And I think that the reason is, I don't understand dog psychology, but I think it's because Ollie wants to know where each member of the family is. And that's because Ollie is a sheepdog, and he's not just a sheepdog once, but he's a sheepdog twice. First, he's an Australian shepherd, which is a sheepdog, and secondly, he's a border collie. So herding is in Ollie's nature. He longs to gather his family together. He just can't help it. He cannot resist that urge. And Jesus can't help it either. Jesus longs, you know, to bring his people together, um, and he can't help it. It's who he is. He's a gatherer. He's a herder. His reflex uh, reaction, his knee-jerk reaction, is to gather and to bring us closer and closer and tighter and tighter and safer and safer. That's just what he wants. And it's not just a select few. He wants everyone in on the huddle. He wants everyone under the protective shadow of his wings. Jesus cannot resist his impulse to, to gather us. And, uh, and so here we, you know, we see this truth that he wants everyone in on the huddle. It says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So he wants everyone in on the huddle. Everyone is invited. He's running up and down the trail, trying to bring us all together. It's like this scratch that Jesus, or this itch that Jesus cannot scratch. Um, because there's always someone else that he has to gather in. And so it's interesting to think that Jesus is the eternally satisfied son, right? He is full. He is absolutely complete. There is nothing that he needs. And yet the eternally satisfied son, when it comes to those orphans who he's not yet brought home, Jesus is unsatisfied. How often have I longed, he says. And when you stray away from him, Jesus longs for you. He hankers for you to come home. It's his nature. He cannot help it. Just like a mother hen gathering the chicks under her wings. What a wonderful image. And I love that image of this hen because Jesus just called Herod, Herod Antipas, a fox. And what do foxes love eating? Little chickens. And so in view of this threat, Jesus takes on the role of mother hen. And this mother hen image is really powerful. But I, but I wanted to make sure that I understood this mother hen image right and so that I wasn't making anything up because pastors, you know, they could sometimes wax eloquent and lyrical and, you know, exaggerate and, you know, it sounds like a good story, so I'll use it. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that my understanding of the mother hen was right. And so I went to this website called uh, United Poultry Concern. And uh, if you're a Star Wars fan, this is a little aside, but if you're a, if you're a Star Wars fan, you'll know that May the 4th is Star Wars Day. But also, May the 4th is International Respect for Chickens Day. Okay, so on that day, Respect your chickens, okay? I, 
this is serious, and don't eat KFC, okay? So that's May the 4th, International Respect for Chickens Day, and that's from United Poultry Concern. But there's this article on the upc.online or upconline.org website that addresses this phenomenon of a hen protecting their young under their wings. And they quote this Renaissance writer, this guy called Ulysses Aldrovandi. Never heard of him? Me either. But what, you, what, what Ulysses Aldrovandi says is he says that the first sign of a predator, mother hens will immediately gather their chicks under the shadow of their wings and, and with, this, with this covering, they put up such a fierce defense, striking fear into their opponent in the midst of a frightful clamor using both wings and beak. They would rather die for their chicks than seek safety in flight. They would rather die for their chicks than seek safety in flight. Does that sound like anyone you know? Psalm 17, verse 8 says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who are out to destroy me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. Psalm 63, verse 7 says, Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. What a powerful image. Friends, please take a good, honest look at your own life. Are you clinging to Jesus or are you striking out alone? Are you hidden in the shadow of Jesus' wings or are you maybe distant from him? Are you keeping him at wing's length? This morning, I invite us all to return. Psalm 36 says this, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. What more do we need than this? So friends, Jesus longs uh, to gather us because, or Jesus pressed on because he longs yeah, to gather us. He, uh, but he, he won't round us up and say, right, get under my wings now. You, you, and you. This is where you have to be. He won't force us into that space. Jesus is willing to wait. Verse 34 says this. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left, left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, now, there's a lot going on in this verse, so I want to slow it down a little bit so that we understand what's going on. You see, about 40 years after Jesus' death, or after Jesus' prophecy, but also Jesus' death, in about AD 70, there was this long siege, and after this long siege... Uh, Jerusalem was invaded by a Roman army led by a general known as Titus who would later become emperor of Rome. And the city and the temple were raised right, right down to the ground, which is absolutely tragic. Now, Wendy and I went to Rome three years ago, and while we were in Rome, we saw this thing called the Arch of Titus. And this arch actually shows this moment where the Jerusalem temple is actually destroyed. Uh, uh, and these are my photos. 
And uh, here we see um, things being taken out, including the Jewish menorah. And this is likely the moment that Jesus is referring to in Luke chapter 13, where he says, your house is left to you absolutely desolate. And so Jesus, in, in the year that he is, is looking forward to AD 70. And he's saying to the people of Jerusalem, the one who have killed the prophets in the past and who will ultimately, along with the Romans, kill him, he's saying to them that their temple is going to be destroyed. And then he says this to them. He says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this, of course, is a clue about Jesus' mission. You see, this, 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 uh, this line here is a direct quote back to Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 says this, uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord. We bless you. And so I, I want you to notice this underlined part, which is an exact reference and this word house that is repeated in each of them. Because what this means is that, is that this house will be destroyed and the temple will be left absolutely desolate. And so, and what Jesus is saying in Luke 13 is the only way to undo this is to, is to call to Jesus from the temple, from the house, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, but how do you pronounce a blessing from a temple that no longer exists? Because after AD 70, it will no longer exist. How can Jesus come in the name of the Lord to a temple that is destroyed? Now, some people think that Jesus is talking end times here, that it's a sign of the end times that the physical temple will be rebuilt, and they might be right, I don't know. But I think there's a more immediate fulfillment of this prophecy in Luke 13, 35. Okay? So, so, in, so to recap, Jesus says, you know, that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and, uh, and, 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 and he... And, he says that you will not see me again until this happens from the house of the Lord. Okay? And so the question is, could Jesus be talking about a temple other than the physical temple in the city of Jerusalem? And the answer is, yes, he is. You see, in John chapter 2, uh, Jesus is in the physical temple at the time of the Passover, and he gets into it with the money changers, you know, and the people selling all the sacrificial animals, and he makes a whip, and he flips tables, you know, if you've been raised in church, then, then you know that story, and in that moment, in John chapter 2, Jesus says this, he says, he's, uh, or, or they ask him, what gives you the right, you know, to come in here and to flip tables, who who gives you the, the authority? And Jesus says, I, I will show you a sign. They say, well, what's that sign? And Jesus says to them, you destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Of course, talking about the physical temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So John chapter 2 verse uh, 19 tells us that in Luke chapter 3, 13 verse 35, Jesus is saying that he is the temple. And, that, and he's saying that his temple, Jesus' body, 
will be destroyed by the Jews and that he will raise it again in three days. And indeed, after the body of Jesus was resurrected on Easter Sunday, he became the means through which we can approach God. In other words, Jesus became the temple. And it's from you know, the temple of Jesus, from this place of trusting in him, of having in faith with him, that we can say to him, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, from Jesus himself, we, we bless you. And so we have this wonderful image of Jesus both being, you know, the temple, that place where we dwell, where we are safe, and the one who is coming, you know, who is coming into the temple which is a powerful image, but also rather confusing. How can Jesus be the thing and the one who's coming into the thing? But isn't that what sanctification is all about, right? Is that we have Jesus, we're safe in Jesus, we are his, and yet we keep inviting him in more and more and more. And we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there's us. We are secure, and we're saying to Jesus, Welcome. We want more of you. And in AD 70, the temple in Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed, never to be rebuilt. But the prophecy in Luke 13, 35 still stands because Jesus is, is the temple. He's the one who stands firm and he's the one who comes. And he's willing to wait for you to invite him into what is rightfully his. Your, your body, your life. Because in Christ, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus pressed on because he longs to gather us, but he's willing to wait. He won't force his way in. And so my encouragement this morning is for us, uh, you know, for you and for me to invite him into that place of safety, uh, you know, and for you to find that place of safety under his wings, to invite him into your life and to say to Jesus that you are blessed. You are the one who came. You are the one who represents God. You have come in God's name. And so I welcome you into my life. I worship you. I give everything that I have to you. Now, when Jesus said the word willing, uh, because he said, and you were not willing. And the word willing in Greek is fellow. I think that's how you pronounce it. And interestingly, the same word for, for willing is the same word that Jesus said in the word, uh, I have longed. And so we often think of the word willing as, I'll do what I guess, right? But here, there's this sense of longing. So how do we understand this? I think it's that Jesus's longing is that our longing for him would match his longing for us. Is that we, is that we wouldn't worship him under sufferance, but that we would long for him we would, we would long for him in the same way that he longs for us. And so let me ask you this morning, do you long for him? Are you able to say to him, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Because when Jesus hears the invitation from you, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he will come. He will come. Because like it says here, I think that salvation, and from what we read here, salvation isn't so much believing the right thing as it is longing for the right person. And when that happens, when you long for the right person and Jesus comes and he takes up residence in you, that this temple 
which was raised right down to the ground, will be full of grace and mercy and community and resurrection power and more because God is in the house. And so this week, my, what I'd encourage you to do is to take verse 34, okay, if there's anything that you take from this, this morning. So take verse 34, um, and which is where Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you, you who, you know, um, stone the prophets, and to turn that prayer or, or to turn that statement into your own life. And so, you, you know, you would use your own name. So I would say, Dan, Dan, you who, and then I'd list my, my sins, and then I'd hear from Jesus how often I have longed, you know, to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. And that as I, as I speak the words, words from Jesus into my own life, he will meet me there as I confess my sins to him and then to press into him. We all have foxes in our lives, right? Maybe not. Herod Antipas, maybe not the Roman Empire forcibly invading, though now that seems like not such a crazy idea as it was three, three weeks ago, but we all have foxes in our lives. And if life is full of foxes, we need a mother hen or we need a brother hen, someone who pressed on because he longs, longs to gather us and someone who's willing to wait. And so maybe... We should reclaim the word chicken. Instead of using it to call out someone's fear or someone's cowardice, maybe we should use it as a badge of honor, of, you know, of highest bravery. Because Jesus was our chicken. Jesus became a chicken for us. He faced the foxes of sin and death and hell for us. He pressed on so that we can press in. He looks ahead and he sees all of the troubles that are coming your way in the same way that he looked ahead at AD 70 and he said, things are going to be bad for you in about, in about 30 years or so. He looks ahead and he sees those foxes who are coming our way and he says to us, press into me. Jesus is our chicken. He invites us to hunker down under the shadow of his wings and he waits. You know, so the question is, is it, or is not, are you a sinner? But the question is, how close to Jesus do you want to truly be? Or when Jesus looks at you, does he say, but you were not willing? Or does he see that longing, that willingness? 